Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers in danger from bandits, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus... The governor under King Aratus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Let me pray for us as we look at God's word together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you very much for the Lord Jesus and the way that he has and does lead us. We thank you that he did not come into the world to be served, but to serve. We thank you that he gave his life as a ransom for many. We thank you uh, for his costly sacrifice on our behalf. And this morning, as we think about what it means to be a people who follow in his footsteps, please help us to think much of Christ and to be willing to be like him in his service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
in many areas of life, I think we have a pretty good grasp of what success and what failure looks like. So if you're thinking about the world of education, we know that an A star is better than a fail. If we're thinking about the world of business, we know that a profit is better than a loss. If we're thinking um, about the world of sports, we know that promotion is better than being relegated. If we're thinking about popularity, we know that having lots of friends is better than having no friends. If you're thinking about holidays, we know that a, a holiday full of sunshine and lots of joy and fun things to do is better than a week full of wind and rain and quarreling amongst those who are involved. If you're thinking about gym membership, we know that going three times a week is better than going once a year. I could go on, but you get the point. In lots of areas in life, there is a consensus. We sort of agree on, on what a successful outcome looks like and on what failure looks like. But what about in the area in front of us this morning in 2 Corinthians 11, as Paul writes to us about the Christian life? In 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a group of Christians who are deeply confused about what success and failure looks like in at least two crucial areas. We'll see this morning, particularly in the area of Christian leadership and in Christian service. The Corinthians think they have found just the leaders they need. You can imagine them with a a tick list of criteria that they really want in a leader, and they have found the super apostles, we've met them already uh, in our series in 2 Corinthians, and they, they looked at the, the super apostles and at the criteria, and the super apostles seem to tick every single box they're looking for, and they think, brilliant, we found just the leaders we need for the future. We've seen that the super apostles, they were brilliant speakers. They were booked up weeks in advance. Their message was attractive with none of the challenge that Paul preached. Their lifestyle was was comfortable and easy thanks to the large fees they could command from their speaking. And so from a, a worldly point of view, as the Corinthians thought about the super apostles, they thought success, not failure. In fact, you can imagine the, super, the, the Corinthians as they talked amongst each other and as they looked at the super apostles, you can imagine them saying, look at how good our leaders are. We must be a, quite a church. At the same time, they would have looked at the apostle Paul and in their eyes, with their criteria in front of them, according to the world's criteria, they would see a weak and foolish apostle If there is one word to capture the mood in the Corinthian camp, I wonder if you noticed what that word would be. It comes up seven times in just our short verses from our reading. The word boasting. You can imagine the Corinthians. Look at us. We have better leaders who are more fluent, more effective, more powerful, more praised And so look at our church. It's a more effective church, a more powerful church, a a more impressive church. And sadly, that kind of mentality can be alive and well today in so many churches. Perhaps we wouldn't see quite the same kind of boasting in terms of 
being overt or blatant, and yet still there can be a, a sense of, of smugness, of, of looking down at other Christian leaders or other Christian churches. And this kind of Corinthian boasting is dangerous because it can be so easily built on all the wrong categories of success and failure, on, on wretchedly worldly categories that have nothing to do with the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul's goal this morning in 2 Corinthians 11 is to help us to redefine how we view success and failure in Christian leadership and in Christian service. And by the end of this morning, I hope that none of us will feel that we should be people who boast, not at least in the way the world does. Well, you'll see in the handouts, our first point is this. Don't be fooled by a worldly view of leadership. Verse 16, Paul says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. Many years ago, I shared a house with a particular housemate who seemed to be addicted to junk food. As far as I could tell, his diet consisted mainly of um, Pringles and uh, Jaffa cakes and Haribo. And uh, we had meals as a house, but he often seemed to be away or busy or unable to come to the table. And he'd much prefer just to snack throughout the day rather than having set meals. And um, his fiancée was uh, rightly concerned about his diet. And so she began to order food for him, nice meals from a local shop and fruit and vegetables and so on. But uh, because my friend was so used to junk food, he, he didn't really want the healthy meals or the carrots or apples. And so often the food was just left untouched in the fridge. How do you wean a junk food addict off junk food? I think that is something of the dilemma Paul faces here in 2 Corinthians. The Corinthians were used to a a diet of feasting on the, the, the spiritual equivalent of junk food. They've been used to a certain leadership style that had um, its foundations in the world and worldly categories and had very little to do with the gospel and Jesus Christ. Paul is coming as as a true apostle of Christ. He wants to to wean them off such worldly diets and values and he wants them to stand instead on the the gospel values. But he knows that unless he plays it carefully, they, they won't care, they won't listen. It's as if Paul offers them carrots and they want crisps. And so he's very clever, but he's very uncomfortable in what he does next. He meets them halfway. He does a little bit of super apostle style boasting, the kind of things that the Corinthians love to hear, not because Paul thinks that's the right way to speak, but rather to to meet them where they're at and then to, to bring them to a much more safe and stable and healthy place as Christians. And even as Paul writes, you can sense how uncomfortable he is, even going anywhere near the super apostles, and yet he must. And as he writes, he drips with, with irony and sarcasm in his words. Look at verse 17. In this self-confident boasting, I, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. The super apostles were, were boasting in themselves, a, a self-confident boasting. You can imagine them saying, look at our skills and our training and our public speaking in the crowds and our salaries. But it's not the way the Lord spoke. 
if there's ever a person who had the right to boast about their ministry, it would have been the Lord Jesus. If you want to talk about power, he calmed a storm with a word. If you want to talk about insight, he knows the hearts of every single person. If you want to talk about power over healing or over death or knowing the future, Jesus could have boasted about all such things, and yet he never boasted that way. Rather, he came humbly to do the will of the one who sent him. Verse 18. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. There is a way that the world boasts. Uh, TV shows like The Apprentice, it's still going, amazingly, after so many years. Um, there are people on that show who are obviously over the top in how they boast about their experience and prowess and skills and how they can make money. And we're meant to watch them and laugh at how ridiculous they are as they talk. That's partly how the show works. But part of why what they say is funny is because it's a parody of what actually happens in the world. It's not as extreme as what happens on TV shows, but it does happen. Our offices are full of people who have a plan to put themselves forward. There are power plays at work trying to get one over on other people. There will be little reminders in conversations about past successes to position themselves well in the next meeting. And often all this is accompanied by a belittling of other people as they raise themselves up. A worldly way of boasting. And rather than being put off by such people who were doing that, the super apostles, the Corinthians couldn't get enough of them. They believed all the PR and the spin. And that is why Paul is so exasperated with them in verse 19. He says, you gladly put up with fools because you are so wise. He's being sarcastic, of course. There is a dark side to all of this. Paul goes on to unpack more specifically the kind of leadership the Corinthians were putting up with. And so he says in verse 20, in fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. When Lorna and I used to live in London, we got to know a number of people who worked in the city And some of the bosses they describe to us are not far short of the kind of behavior in verse 20. The kind of boss who would make you work late no matter what your plans. If you had plans for seeing friends or or a meal out, tough, scrap them. You're staying late in the office because the boss says so. If your boss has to work all night, then you have to work all night. Even if there isn't that much for you to do because he's there, you'll be there. The kind of boss who, when they shout, you jump. An overbearing leadership style, controlling. Um, And as so often is the case with such things, people who are in the environment experiencing some kind of abuse think that's just the way it has to be. You might think, well, why would people choose to work in such an environment? And they say, well, the price is worth it. The company is growing, the salaries are sky high. And if it means putting up with an abusive boss, well, so be it. And the Corinthians, I think similar. They may not have liked 
the leadership style of verse 20, but they might have said to us, well, look, the church is growing. There's a lot of power around. The crowds are flocking in. People love the sermons. And so we'll tolerate verse 20. It's not great, but it's just the way it has to be. Sadly, this kind of abuse of the position of leadership is not consigned to the first century. If I can be autobiographical for a moment, when I was a kid, my family used to go to a church where the leadership were not far from verse 20. If someone in the church family were to make a decision, whether small or large, without consulting with the leadership, they would be in trouble. If there was even a whiff of criticism or, or feedback or negativity, it was met with white-hot anger, strong lines drawn. If other church leaders were talked about at all into the glowing terms or any wisdom was appealed to outside of the church leadership, it was met with a strong rebuke. It was an overbearing style of leadership. And one of the really sad things about it was that my family didn't see it until they left. They just thought it was normal, the way it had to be. And it was only when they were out of the church context they could look back and realize just how abusive and dominating that kind of style of leadership is. And I know from speaking to a number of you here this morning, my experience is not the only experience of that kind of domineering church leadership. In contrast, think of the Apostle Paul. He did not come to enslave people, but rather, as he says back in chapter four, verse five, he came to serve people. Instead of exploiting or taking advantage of the Corinthians, Paul was willing to work free of charge. He was willing to become poor to make them rich. And instead of slapping them about the face, Paul came with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so he would say to the Corinthians and to us this morning, don't be fooled by a worldly view of leadership. I don't want to name names, but um, I can think of one well-known church leader in the US who was a pastor of a very large church. There'll be many here in the room who will know the name. There'll be many who have even listened to his sermons online or listened to podcasts. It's quite a story that the church leader began a, a small church and it grew to thousands, and not just in one site, but many different sites around the city. And people would flock from all over the country and the world to hear this leader preach and lead. Uh, he was uh, well thought of both within and without of the church. Um, his style was strong and, and manly, and things got done when he said they should get done. And uh, many people in the church highly respected him. Look at the leader we have. I'm so glad to be part of this church. And then the stories began to break about his temper and about his intolerance of feedback. There were allegations of bullying. And if you know the story, eventually it all came out and it all came crashing down. much better to have a leader who looks foolish in the world's eyes, who looks weak and unsuccessful and not worth boasting about. Much better to have that kind of leader if they will love you and serve you and be gentle with you. After all, isn't that 
the way the Lord Jesus lived his life and led his disciples. And so look for leaders who follow our great leader, the Lord Jesus. Don't be fooled by a worldly view of leadership. Second, don't be fooled by a worldly view of Christian service. Paul continues to unpack the worldly boasting of the super apostles. And so verse 21. What anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. You can just feel how much Paul hates to to speak this way as he reaches out to the Corinthians. But he continues, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are, Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. In terms of identity, Paul ticks all the family tree boxes you could want for an apostle of Christ. But then he asks one more question about identity, and this question changes everything. You see, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. And what follows are the qualifications, that the hallmarks of a true servant of Christ as opposed to the super apostles. These are things that Paul will boast about, that mark him out. And uh, as Don Carson, the Christian writer, puts, this is what he says. We might imagine Paul saying something like this. I have established more churches. I have preached the gospel in more lands and to more ethnic groups. I have traveled more miles. I have won more converts. I have written more books. I have raised more money. I have dominated more councils. I have walked with God more fervently and seen more visions. I have commanded the greatest crowds and performed the most spectacular miracles. But he doesn't say this. Verse 23, instead he says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Back in Paul's day, there was a particular way for people to talk about their exploits. So amongst Roman citizens, if you wanted to sort of show off a bit, you would give the, um, the facts and figures behind your life. A Roman general would be often um, describing his life this way. He'd say, I... Um, I won five battles and I conquered three armies and I was given six triumphs back in Rome. The facts and figures of of their life. And here Paul gives the facts and figures of his triumphant career. Here they are. Five times he was beaten by the Jews. Three times beaten by Roman rods. There was one stoning, three shipwrecks, and one full day in the open ocean. It's an extraordinary list. Paul is parodying the super apostles. They too had their list of boasts. Look at how many people come to our meetings, how much money we've earned this year. Look at the ratings going up. Paul says, well, here's my facts and figures. 
He boasts about dangers and hardships, difficult labor. Unlike the super apostles, Paul has gone without food, often cold and naked because he would not charge for his ministry. And besides all these physical sufferings, verse 29, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? I think the super apostles carried very little about the spiritual condition of the Corinthians. They didn't really care about the sin that they discovered. But not Paul. He was deeply moved. You can imagine him tossing and turning at night once he'd heard about a brother struggling in sin, just thinking, how can I encourage them? How can I spur them on? What can be done? And if I had to summarize this extraordinary biography, it would be costly suffering. For Paul, this is evidence. This is the hallmark that he is a true servant of Christ. Why is this the case? Because Christ himself lived this way. Christ came to give up his life. He came to be beaten and broken and killed on a Roman cross. He did not come for an easy life, but to give his life because he cared about the sin and suffering of people. And so the hallmark of a true servant of Christ is a willingness to suffer like Christ. And then Paul talks about his weakness. In verses 33, sorry, 30 to 33, he describes one particular moment very early on in his Christian life when he fled the city of Damascus, fearing arrest, fearing violence against him. In Roman days, there was a well-known medal awarded to Roman soldiers when they attacked the city and the first soldier up and over the wall into the city would be given a, a medal of great honor. And here I think Paul gives his own version of the medal. Rather than being the first over the wall, he was the first down the wall as he ran away in a basket escaping arrest and danger. He was the great Christian leader, the great church planter, the apostle Paul, being lowered in a basket in great weakness. And so, don't be fooled by a worldly view of Christian service. Don't believe the false claims that the super apostles make that Christian service is marked by convenience and ease and popularity and power and worldly success. That was never the experience of Christ. And so, why would it be the experience of his servants? What does this all mean for us? Well, I think the the first application is that we here today can have great confidence in the Apostle Paul. There are many people here today in this world who mock Paul, the Apostle, but here we're seeing the hallmarks of why he is an authentic Apostle. Look how much he suffered like Christ and for Christ. And of course, that means we can have great confidence in what he wrote in, in the Scriptures I think it also means that we should look for leaders who are willing to follow Paul as he followed Christ. Leaders who are happy to be honest about their weaknesses. Leaders who are prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ. It's been a challenge for me, preparing this week. Wondering if I have that heart. I came across one survey conducted in the U.S., 
recently. I know things are slightly different in the US, but I think there are parallels. A survey into Christian leaders and into their morale, and here's some of the headlines. 80% of pastors feel discouraged in their roles. 50% are so discouraged that if they could find alternative employment and pay the bills, they would leave their post. And only one in 10 pastors will survive in the ministry until retirement. There are many reasons why those in Christian leadership give up and are discouraged. But I I wonder if one of the reasons is because even as evangelicals, we have begun to think like Corinth about Christian service. That we think that if we go into Christian service and are involved, that it'll be one upward trend. The graph will always be rising. That um, people will always think well of us. That when we work, it'll bear great fruit that we can see. That um, when people um, come to us, um, they'll be quick to learn and listen. That the church plants that we start will always go upwards. That the budget will always be balanced. And when it's not that way, it's easy to conclude, well, it's not for me. I'm not cut out for that kind of service. But here Paul shows the Corinthians what Christian service is like. Christ suffered, and so his servants should expect to suffer too. And so we should be drawn to leaders who serve, who model their Christian service on the service of Christ. Not leaders who are particularly impressive or powerful or fluent in the world's eyes, but but leaders who are willing to experience costly sacrifice and who share their weaknesses. But it's not just Christian leaders who serve in Christian service. Paul's words are a great challenge to all of us who seek to serve Christ. Maybe for some of us, it's leading a small group. Maybe for others, it is opening the Bible one-to-one with another Christian. Maybe for others, it's just trying to encourage a Christian with the gospel. Maybe picking up the phone or going for a coffee. For others, it'll just be a practical service because we love other Christians. And it's easy for us to slip into a Corinthian mindset when it comes to our particular area of service. We expect it to be convenient and easy and for people to always come to our small groups and not to drift away, for the people we read the Bible with to understand the Bible and want to live for Christ, for people who we've challenged over sin to repent quickly and to to thank us for it. Um, Or when we, we do work hard for people to notice and say thank you for that, but It isn't always that way in the Christian life. Yes, there'll be great joys. There'll be great moments of breakthrough. But I wonder if we're also prepared to experience costly suffering in Christian service. And I guess the danger for us is that when we experience it, we might think, well, it's not for me. I'm serving in the wrong area. And we give up. Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that suffering in and of itself proves that we are serving Christ. Uh, Lots of people in this world suffer and they're not Christians. Uh, Nor am I saying that we should go looking for suffering as a kind of badge of honor, saying look how serious I am in my Christian service. It's never a glorious thing to suffer like that. It's, It's hard. 
Nor should we wallow in suffering like an Eeyore, saying, look at how much I'm going through. That's not Paul's point here. I think rather his point is that a right expectation of Christian service will be a huge help to us as we serve Christ. Not to be thrown by a, a Corinthian view of service, not to be thrown by when hard things come our way. We all have a sense of what failure and success looks like in life, I think. When it comes to Christian leadership and service, may we view success the way the Lord Jesus did, who set aside the riches of heaven for the poverty of frail human flesh, who set aside the power of a heavenly throne and was willing to be nailed in shame and weakness to a Roman cross, who did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life for a ransom. May that be our heart, our understanding of success and failure. And if this sounds like a hard word this morning, may I remind us that to know Christ now, even in his suffering, is to be certain that a day is coming when we will stand as the bride of Christ. Remember last week, that wedding day is coming, when this world in all its brokenness and pain is done with, and a new world, a new creation comes. It is worth suffering for Christ now for that future day. Before I pray, just a a moment of quiet. And whether we are Christian this morning or not a Christian, a, a chance to consider a question. The question is this. What do we expect Christian service to be like? What do we expect Christian service to be like? I'm just going to leave a moment of quiet and then I'll pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you very much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is not like other leaders. He did not come to lord it over the people. Instead, he came to serve. And Father, we are amazed once again at how he has served us. We thank you that he came to humble himself to death. We thank you that he was broken for us on the cross. And we thank you that he experienced shame and weakness that we might not. And Father, as we fill our hearts and minds once again with the service of Christ, would you help us to be a people who are willing to serve like him? Please help us not to have a wrong view of success and failure in Christian leadership and Christian life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.